Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. We are back today with Mary Jane Orr, who is the General Manager for Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, Inc., where she leads a dedicated team to advance the Manitoba beef and forage industry through engaging stakeholders, evaluating on-farm innovation, and extension for sustainability of farmers, the public, and the environment. She deeply values the opportunity to collaborate with producers, researchers, education providers, extension specialists, conservation groups, and all stakeholders in field testing management practices and growing understanding of improved production in Manitoba. Mary Jane holds a PhD from Purdue University in soil microbial ecology in agricultural systems and is a professional agrologist and certified crop advisor. Her experience in ecology and field agronomy gives her a unique perspective on the challenges facing agriculture today. Welcome back to the podcast today, Mary Jane. Today, we're discussing a completed project that took place at MBFI's Johnson Farm investigating pasture cropping. So to start off, can you give us kind of an overview of what pasture cropping is for listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with the term? Oh, for sure, Chantel. Thank you for having me back on the podcast today. In its simplest sense, I would say pasture cropping is just exactly what it sounds like. It's just a practice of seeding an annual crop into a pasture stand with the goal of increasing productivity from that land base. And that's either for additional forage production or for grain production. With respect to this project specifically, it was actually, again, one of the first projects that MBFI undertook as leading ourselves. And a previous staff member, Christelle Harper, brought forward the idea and adapted it from a practice that's done down in Australia, where pasture cropping is a land management system developed by farmers to integrate grazing and crop production. So obviously they have a much different, I mean, they have two growing seasons. They have a much different land type and weather and climate to kind of make this happen. So what they're doing down there is taking advantage of seeding annuals into a pasture once it goes dormant. And when it's in dormancy, they can basically get a crop off and then still maintain that pasture without losing that pasture productivity. So you're getting a double cropping system with the same footprint of land base. Thank you. And what land types are best suited for pasture cropping? 
and why? Well, when we were thinking about adapting it to Manitoba, we find that typically land that's already in perennial forage production tends to lean towards being more marginal in the first place. We're here uh, when we're looking at this project, the main distinction was really to be seeding annual crops without breaking or completely terminating the pasture. So that, I mean, the goal of that is to protect the soil structure and, you know, retain that residue cover, and then also retain potentially, you know, that future pasture growth on these really sensitive lands. And they may be marginal for a number of reasons. It could be that they're more sandy sites. It could be they're in wetland, like in more of a, a waterlogged area. So there could be a lot of reasons for the land to be more marginal or why it's more suited to be maintained as a perennial landscape. But for this trial, we wanted to see how it would work at our Johnson farm, which is really challenged by being on a sandy loam soil. And I would also like to make the distinction that this would be a practice to be used in tame pastures and that, you know, it is not a recommendation to be seeding annuals into any stands that are restored native or intact native pastures at all. Do you know, because this was adapted from um, Australia, is it widely used in Canada or other places, or is this something that is fairly new that you wanted to try and kind of see where it went? I would say the practice of trying to put an annual crop into pasture that's maybe declining in productivity is not a new practice, but the idea of how we adapted this using winter annuals and trying to get a double, a quote unquote, kind of double crop with our really short growing season was a really creative idea developed by Christelle um, and staff to think about how we could maybe mimic the Australian model with a dramatically shorter growing season, right? You know, in the elements of this project, I would say it's fairly unique, but in the broad concept of seeding oats or barley into a depleted pasture as a step of rejuvenation, I would say would be a more established practice, but still a lot of opportunity to tweak the agronomy of how to do that well. And we're going to talk about the specifics of the project in a few minutes, but before we do that, can you just describe some of the benefits um, and possible disadvantages of pasture cropping? For sure. So the biggest potential right off the bat would be how we get more productivity out of a limited landscape. So can we, you know, increase our forage productivity from the land, but also retain that soil structure, maintain the residue cover and really mitigate any soil erosion losses, either to wind or to water erosion. When typically, if you were thinking about breaking up a pasture and reseeding it, facing a higher risk of losing all of the ecosystem benefits of having a perennial stand. Where the biggest challenges and success um, when we're trying to do a seeding establishment is that, you know, these potentially degraded pastures can be first and foremost difficult to operate equipment across. So how are we going to get a seeder across this pasture? How are we going to harvest the annual crop off this pasture? Or are we going to have to graze it? And then in adapting the system to the amount of growing conditions I already mentioned, just the challenge of that shorter growing season. So how do we, you know, maximize or be really efficient in our timing to, you know, take advantage of the perennial system that's there, but also make sure that we have an adequate seeding window to generate the productivity that we're hoping to see with this annual crop. 
So to, to adapt to this for this project, we forced. So in Australia, you know, just in their seasonal climate, their forage stands would normally just go into dormancy um, based on their growth cycle and, and their weather, weather patterns. But for us, we forced a setback into those pasture stands by using either a high density grazing or a herbicide, like a chemical supp suppression of the pasture. And we utilized a polycrop of winter annuals so that we were kind of thinking, okay, well, we can't get two growing seasons, but maybe we can get two halves of a growing season. So we're going to have a pasture stand. It's going to grow May through till July. And we could either bale that or graze it. Then we're going to come in and we're going to terminate it. We shouldn't say terminate it, but we're going to set it back and force it into a kind of air quotes, you know, dormancy stage, either by grazing or chemical suppression. And then we're going to put in, you know, this mix of winter annuals. And is that mix of winter annuals going to grow enough from August, September, October, that we could potentially have some grazing potential late fall? And then are we going to see more productivity the following spring that we could then harvest a green feed or harvest by grazing? And then following that kind of peak productivity in July the next year, how are those pastures going to regrow into the fall? So can we sandwich in this kind of increased productivity in the shoulder seasons, but not necessarily lose the pasture as a whole uh, is what the thinking was. So as I'm explaining it, I'm sure you can see all kinds of challenges that might be happening. You know, are we going to get the adequate moisture for anything to grow? What's the competition going to be like with the pre-existing pasture plant community competing with whatever we're seeding into it? So we were just, yeah, really interested in seeing if we could graze that early fall growth. And that would be a huge potential just to, you know, bump up productivity in, um, in a shoulder season. You know, the more days that we're grazing, the fewer days we need to be feeding our cows, bales that are subject to price volatility. And so, yeah, so an additional challenge would be just to see how that pasture regrowth competed with the winter annual mix the following year and how that would kind of wash out an overall yield comparing the different systems. Were there challenges that you had in actually seeding the land based or like because of prior cattle impact or like I'm thinking like those cow trails or but you know what I mean? <laughs> no, no. This is great. <laughs> Mole hills, gopher hills, we have them all at Johnson Farm. We have Richardson ground squirrels. So those guys are not our friends for trafficability on the pasture at all. No. So did you have to do like some preparation to that land before you were able to, to seed it? We drove slow. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing like for kind of also comparing low input approach versus a higher input. So, you know, a higher input approach would be turning the pasture over, getting it nice and level, having more passes with implements to, you know, improve the trafficability of that field or paddock or pasture. So yeah, no, the Johnson farm, that specific 20 acres that we subdivided into plots is rough. We don't have any cattle trails in it per se, but there are mole hills and gopher hills and yeah it's it's challenging um, because it is rougher so it requires you to drive that much slower and it just takes that much more time so on the broader scale applicability 
I think there's a lot of things you can probably do for leveling of a pasture. It wasn't so bad that we couldn't get our equipment across it. We just had to drive that a little bit slower to make sure that we weren't damaging our equipment and getting everything established. That makes sense. So you've kind of already talked quite a bit about the project, but is there anything else you wanted to add about the objectives of the project and how it was implemented? Sure. I might just double back over a couple of things just because for us, when we started it, it was kind of a mind melt to figure out what do you mean double cropping and you're double cropping over growing season. So like, how do we get our head around this a little bit? So the trial at Johnson farm is located on this, you know, loamy fine sands where the dominant forages were the Kentucky bluegrass, brome grass, and, you know, less than 10% legume. So we're really low fertility, low legume, perennial legumes, like alfalfa or sandfoin or birds, but trefoil, like nothing in there. And the stand had, you know, been managed by grazing or it was hayed for the last 15 years, not seeing a lot of rejuvenation. And so their overarching aim was really to see if we could successfully get things growing. Um, you know, can we get things seeding established? And do we see an increase in productivity with these winter annual mixes? And then what that impact is on the existing forage stand, you know, a year after this happened a little while ago, it was carried out over 2019 and the 2020 growing seasons. And we measured the establishment and yield of the two comparison pasture cropping strategies relative to the pre-existing forage stand. So that, you know, resulted in a measurement of a baseline forage yield was carried out before the start of the trial, two months following seeding in 2019. And then we also collected samples in the following 2020 growing season in July, uh, kind of for that peak winter annual forage productivity, also peak cool season grasses forage productivity as well. And the three treatments were replicated three times and randomly over the plot area. So we were able to kind of look at some comparisons or look at the variability across the field as well. And you mentioned the treatments in there. So what different treatments were used and why were these chosen? So first and foremost was a control. The control was just a pre-existing forage stand with no suppression and no seeding, but it did receive all three treatments received a baseline fertility, which was 60 pounds of N, 15 pounds of phosphorus and 50 pounds of K actual. So the control had equipment drive over it and received fertility, but it didn't receive any seeding or grazing. The grazing suppression. So this would be a very like a mob graze, a high density graze where we're taking everything off um, to really set back that pasture stand was done at the end of July. And then the herbicide suppression was like a half rate of glycosate. So it ended up being, I think, on an actual, I think maybe like 360 grams of glycosate per acre that was sprayed to not do a complete burn off, but just to really set back that forage growth of that existing stand. And so that really boils down to a comparison of like a low input approach. So using cattle to set back and then seed into the pasture or using a higher input approach with like the additional pass of a tractor and a sprayer, the cost of the spray, and otherwise everything else was held consistent. So in both the chemical and the grazing suppression treatments, it was a mix of fall rye, uh, winter triticale, the hairy vetch, as well as tillage radish, and 
Hercules turnips. And these were seeded on August 8th in 2019. And we used just a John Deere 752 no-till box drill to get those into both the grazing and herbicide suppression treatments. And I'd just like to take a minute to acknowledge Imperial Seeds and Zeger Seeds for their sponsorship of the seed to carry out the trial. So greatly appreciated, wouldn't have been possible without them. And then for the control, we just didn't touch it. We let that kind of be the comparison between the two treatments. If a producer was looking at doing this on a larger scale and wanting to use the grazing suppression, would there be any concern in the time it would take, say, to graze those pastures down that short and get through, say, all of the acres and then getting the seeding done? Oh, absolutely. Because as soon as you're done grazing, it's growing again. So you would have to have stages. So you'd kind of figure out how many cattle you have, what kind of split, like how, what big of a strip you can get done in, you know, three days or something, and then seed that, and then, you know, do the next chunk. So you're, you might have to split it out. If you're doing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres, you might have to do blocks at a time and your seeding would be staggered. And I mean, that's just kind of off the top of my head, but yeah, I think you would get your grazing suppression would, it would start growing back because you're trying to create a competitive window for what you're seeding to kind of pop out of the ground and get going before the forage stand grows back in from the grazing. And was that something that at MBFI you had to take into consideration or did you have a big enough cattle herd and a small enough plot of land that that wasn't as much of a concern? Definitely small enough plot of land. So we took 20 acres and divided it into nine plots. So it was pretty easy peasy. We just used our replacement heifers. So that on 20 acres, it wasn't a limitation. But again, for the broad acres application, if you were looking at grazing suppression, I think you would just tackle that by doing it in blocks at a time. And so that sounds a bit more fiddly, but you are getting the grazing days out of that suppression as well. So there is value capture in that. Yeah. And you're still not having to use a tractor and a chemical and pay for that input as well. So that's interesting. What were the outcomes of the different treatments and the project as a whole? Okay. So I'll break it out kind of into like the initial establishment fall and then what we saw the following year. So in the baseline sampling of the yield and forage quality, as it was established, we noted that there was no differences in what we started with. So across those nine plots, we verified that, you know, we didn't have big differences in the yield of the pre-existing pasture. We seeded in that August and then the two months following the suppression and the seeding, the percent of canopy cover in the herbicide suppression treatment showed a trend towards an increase in bare ground. So fewer established grass species and overall more of the seeded crop species relative to or in comparison to both the grazing suppression and the control. So what does that mean? Chemical suppression knocked everything back much better. It was much more effective than grazing suppression. So we did see more bare grounds that, you know, the residues that were there were just not like it just the ground cover or the canopy cover just was much 
thinner due to just reliance on what we seeded into growing back versus the pre-existing stand growing back. That's, that makes a lot of sense. The grazing suppression showed comparable winter cereals. So that's the fall rye and winter triticale coverage to the chemical suppression. So the fall rye and winter trit were able to pop out of the ground and compete against the regrowing pre-existing perennials. But we did see fewer of the brassicas, hairy vetch, and less bare ground, so more coverage. So the grazing suppression showed decrease in the establishment of those brassicas as well as the hairy vetch. And a question might be, you know, why would you include those brassicas if you're interested in the next season's growth? Because we know they're going to die overwintering. And we really just wanted to evaluate increasing polycrop diversity for potential fall grazing. And potentially there might be some soil health benefits of having those brassicas included as well. So if we could break up that uneven ground a bit better by having those tillage radishes and turnips in those mixes. So the initial observations indicate that while overall, all of the plant varieties seeded were able to establish in both suppression treatments, the seeded varieties, complete mixes thrived more when we use the herbicide suppression. So when we use glycosate to set back that pre-existing stand, everything that we wanted or targeted to growing really did take off better in the fall. So what does that look like in terms of yield? We really saw marginal differences. So the overall increase in plant stand diversity really didn't translate into an early increase in yield compared to the control plots. The control plots, you know, showed an average, a marginal increase. So it was only really about 400 pounds of dry weight per acre, more grass yield compared to both the suppression and seedings treatment. So this is in the fall again, first couple of months of growth following the August seeding. That fall moisture that we received combined with the established forage's ability to quickly respond to those favorable growing conditions trended towards outyielding the August seeded winter annuals in that fall growing season. Step into winter, everything shuts down and we head into spring. So what did that yield look like? Or what did our results look like in the following July when we would expect kind of like peak productivity for those winter annuals, as well as our cool season uh, perennial grasses. So going into July, we didn't graze anything. We left those plots completely alone and just let them go till July. Following growing season, the plots that had received the herbicide suppression yielded higher than both the grazing suppression and the control. So we did see higher yields where we seeded winter annuals using uh, herbicide suppression, indicating that, you know, that reduced competition really did see higher productivity and the seeded rows were very easy to distinguish the seeded rows of the crop were visible in the chemical suppression but when we looked for them in the grazing suppression it was just a lot harder to distinguish where we'd actually seeded in the grazing suppression because those perennials just grew back so much following that mob grazing but they were still there, but not, not as much as what was in the chemical setback. And I would like to note that the perennial, like the pre-existing perennial stand did persist despite having that spray of glycosate. It did still persist through it, just that there was more productivity from the targeted seeded crop. So because the plots were so small, like we weren't able to harvest each plot and, you know, get a count of how many bales per acre, we did all the sampling by quarter meter quadrat. So we would go out and take 
numerous samples across each paddock and combine those kind of by hand sampling. So that's the efficiency of being a, a small demonstration farm. To do it at a broader scale, you know, you'd be able to count how many more bales per acre you got in one, you know, field versus in one strip section versus another. So we harvested the whole 20 acres as one, and those were then put up for green feed. But then we went back to those plot areas and looked at the regrowth in August of that same year. So a month later or six weeks later, after cutting the whole field down, uh, following our, you know, subsampling to get yield and quality, we looked at what the recovery of those plots were following post-harvest of that winter annual. And the grazing suppression treatments recovered much better than the chemical suppression treatments. Again, which makes logical sense. So, I mean, if that forage, pre-existing forage bounced back better, made it harder for, you know, our winter annuals to grow, but it was in a better position to be a utilized, like, a, you know, a viable forage stand in later fall was with the grazing suppression. Yeah, so the chemical suppression allowed that annual crop a competitive advantage, but did lower the yield of that perennial stand into that bounce back period so that, you know, heading into fall, we did see lower productivity. And the suppression treatments lowered the amount of perennial grass in both the chemical and the grazing suppression. So we did see the control have higher yield following post-harvest. And the yield of the winter annuals was much higher in the chemical suppression, as I mentioned. It really boils down to just that delaying the regrowth to give that window of opportunity, that competitive advantage to utilize that fall moisture. Boil that down into the economics. So what does that mean? If we think of what it costs to do it, there was a fertility cost to all three treatments, right? So we had put some fertilizer down. The chemical suppression had, you know, an additional cost of the uh, herbicide application, there was the same seeding cost to both uh, the chemical and the grazing suppression. In the yield in July, for the control, we were at about 1,800. So this is on a dry matter yield, pounds per acre. So we had about 1,800 pounds, or we'll say about 1,900 pounds of uh, forage produced in the control. Under the chemical suppression, we had about 2,200 pounds additional yield. And under the grazing suppression, we were more close to about 1,600 pounds per acre. So it really went in terms of highest yielding was chemical suppression, then we had the control, and then we had the grazing suppression in terms of total yield. So when you also think about, okay, well, how much more yield am I getting for the cost of putting down the chemical suppression and the seeding cost or the effort of having grazing suppression done, we're not looking at a huge, huge pounds per acre differences, right? So we're really looking at not a huge difference on this marginal landscape. Now, factors that could feed into this would be spring growing conditions of 2020. Could we fine tune the fertility better? Like maybe a spring applied fertility option may increase that productivity more so I think you could play maybe with seeding rates. I think there's, you know, different ways you could maybe increase yield that may tweak the project. But really, if you're looking at an additional cost of, you know, approximately 60 to $80 an acre to seed something, and you're getting an extra 500 pounds of forage per acre, 
is that worth it? And I think in the years where forage prices are really high and you have really limited forage availability, like 2021, it may be worth it. But in other years, it, you know, it may not be worth it. It may be better just to do fertility management of a pre-existing stand or purely just seed more legumes. It worked, but did the cost of doing it make sense using winter annuals? For the Johnson farm, I'd say it was a pretty thin margin on the economics of getting it to work. So that's not super exciting, but I think it's an important point to put out there is that we did have the benefits from grazing and the grazing suppression, but that didn't necessarily translate for the value of the seed and the cost of putting the seed in the ground. We didn't see really significant blow you away yield increases. I actually written that question down partway through, so I'm glad that you addressed that. Just kind of that cost balance of what was the outcome overall as far as the value of getting maybe slightly more yield, but then having to add input costs that you maybe wouldn't have had otherwise. So that was good to talk well, about. Yeah, it's, it's probably context. So I kind of went in the weeds a little bit there, but I think it really drives into context. So, you know, are you doing this pasture cropping purely to get a yield bump for one growing season? Then this margin is pretty tight. Are you doing this as a step towards pasture rejuvenation? So maybe you're going across the field to get those additional growing roots. If it's a step and a process, maybe having that little bit of productivity tie into whether it makes you know economic sense. But for you know just the bubble of this project, okay, are we going to get more yield from winter annuals from just leaving the pasture alone and putting down some fertility? Not really in terms of the, like just looking at yield compared to cost of doing it on a, like a sandy site. So that's limited, you know, droughty soils, limited by moisture availability and generally lower productivity. And was that kind of what you expected as a final result or were there any unexpected results or outcomes that were surprising to you through the project? I think it made sense. A lot of it made sense. I mean, the chemical suppression being more effective at giving a head start to what we were seeding. I mean, that makes sense. One kind of weird thing that we noticed, and we aren't sure if it's an artifact of maybe there was some pre-existing, like just the variability of the plots that may have fed into this. But we did notice under the grazing suppression that the perennial legumes, so the pre-existing legumes, they seem to bounce back or there seem to be a higher amount of them compared to the control. So that was kind of interesting to find more like alfalfa in the grazing suppression a year later than the controls. Is that a reflection of just the variability of how we happen to sample across the plot areas? Or, you know, is that something we maybe need to do some further evaluation of grazing management in how persistence or the ability of legumes to come into pasture stands. I think that's kind of interesting. The hairy vetch that was seeded was also kind of interesting in that we know that it can overwinter and it did really well under the chemical suppression with that reduced competition. But it was interesting to see that it really just did not do well in the grazing suppression. So that was kind of an interesting observation as well, just to see that Hairy vetch can overwinter. Um, it does grow well, you know, in the sandier soils, 
but it just, it didn't seem to be super happy with the regrowth of the perennial, you know, that smooth brome and Kentucky bluegrass. Yeah, so those are two little things that kind of stood out as a bit different that we maybe didn't expect. Interesting. You've already kind of talked about how forage yield was impacted during the trial, but was there anything else you wanted to add to that? Only that, yeah, it wasn't like we did identify differences, but they were not substantial, like not blow you off your chair. Like, oh my gosh, I want to seed everything, you know, the next year. But all treatments did produce a crop that was nutritionally sufficient for, you know, dry cows, winter feeding under all the treatments, there were productive for how marginal the site is. And like, so there wasn't any wrecks. So I guess it's important to also recognize maybe we weren't blown away by, you know, really impressive results, but we also weren't blown away by any wrecks by doing this practice either. When you did the sampling for quality, how did it compare to what is nutritionally needed for winter feeding in cows? So the requirement that we kind of referenced was wanting about 7% crude protein and about 55% for total digestible nutrients. So the control was, you know, around 9% and 58%. The chemical suppression was around 9% and 57%. And the grazing suppression was a little bit, you know, an uptick of crude protein, which may have been the perennial legumes contributing of 10%, but again, TDN around that 57, 58%. So really pretty level across the board, which is a little surprising. You would think with those winter annuals that they would maybe have, you know, a higher, higher energy contribution, but we really didn't see that in our sampling in that one year in July. So again, as a demonstration, this isn't a multi-year study with a ton of data. So it's kind of a, you know, a snapshot into what this could look like, but we really didn't see anything jump out in terms of quality differences between the different comparisons. With pasture cropping, is there a potential for the planted crop to be harvested and used for grain production? Absolutely. And that's actually the goal in the Australian system is that it is purely for grain production. So you're getting grazing potential as well as grain yield. And in our system, we could also have left the winter annuals to mature to grain, but we don't uh, have any grain harvesting equipment and we definitely weren't hand thrashing anything. So we uh, tend to take everything for forage. Everything that we grow is is destined for forage through our cattle herd. (laughs) Sorry, you're laughing, (laughs) imagining us hand thrashing our plot samples. It's doable and it is done, but we haven't, we haven't gone there yet. So, yeah, so I think that could be a huge potential and then that's a higher value product. So that would shift the economics of doing this as well. Right. So anytime you can get a higher value product off of a cropping system, that's going to make it more profitable to do. It makes those um, inputs balance out in terms of the practice as well. I was laughing about the thought of you having time to hand thrash it. (laughs) Kind of wrapping it up, how is all of this relevant to Manitoba producers and why might pasture cropping be beneficial to them on their farms? Well, I think it makes sense anytime you're trying to get more productivity out of your landscape. And I think it might make sense as a transitioning step in rejuvenating pastures. So maybe you have a stand that you want to 
in and under in different management, you would, you know, disc it up, cultivate it, get a seed bed and put in, you know, a cereal crop and grow a couple annual crops off of it before reseeding it back into a, a desirable tame mix of legumes and, and grasses. Whereas this might be a transition step in that you can kind of take advantage of having a green plant growing longer. So using the winter annuals to transition you into fall uh, with something growing and then still growing in that spring month. So you're not losing any of the soil that you've built to wind and water erosion in the fall and in the spring. Maybe you terminate those winter annuals earlier and then put in either a grain crop or a green feed crop that either you grow for that year or maybe you reduce the seeding rate and, and use it as a nurse crop for establishing that year. Maybe you hop ahead a step for reseeding it back into a perennial stand. So those are not any of the things that we kind of evaluated, but I could see that having application because rejuvenating pastures is one of the biggest challenges when we're looking at how can we do it economically when typically yeah, pastures are on marginal lands where it makes it really hard to put investment dollars into into a field where your return is days of grazing. So what's the lowest input way we can see increases in productivity on those pastures? And what other questions or trials would you like to do with pasture cropping in the future? Oh my gosh, there's so many different things. I kind of already alluded to some of them, but we do have a trial that started in 2023. We did the prep work in the fall of 2022, and we are doing some sod seeding, not with annuals, but looking at um, sod seeding in different perennial seed mixes, kind of across from Johnson Farm on First Street Pasture. But I think there's a lot of work that you could really dig into the agronomy of seeding rates. So what seeding rate do you, is going to be the most impactful for both annuals, like so cereal crops, as well as perennials, and looking at the balance of different mixes. So whether you're growing just a monoculture of like oats following it, or maybe looking at how you can maybe integrate some diverse mixes and how well those take hold and yield and having legumes included to really balance out your fertility requirements, I think is really interesting. So capturing that or putting data behind that. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways we can take known practices, so practices that aren't necessarily new, but tweak some of the agronomy to figure out how we can do it better. And is there anything else that you'd like to share about this project before we wrap up today? I think I, you know, kind of went in the weeds here a little bit on a few things. So definitely welcome any comments that anybody has for me to have a conversation about this. Or if there's interest in us trying it again, so this was just one year that we tried it, you know, and then we get caught up doing other projects. So I guess my big question or kind of put it out there would be if there's interest in us trying to evaluate winter annuals in a pasture cropping system again. And if there's that interest, we could maybe try it again and see if we can get better results on those yield increases or not. Or maybe if there's interest in trying to segue out of you know, a winter annual into another thing in that kind of once it comes off in the following year. But I do still really like the idea of trying to get a double crop in Manitoba is, uh, is kind of inspirational. So I think there 
is, yeah, maybe there's an opportunity or a way to evaluate how to do this better. It kind of seems like this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as what you could do or what you could try to see what will happen. If listeners would like more information on the project, they can always visit mbfi.ca or the direct link to the project report will be in the show notes for listeners looking for that. And as always, if you want to get in contact with Mary Jane, or if you have some ideas or suggestions, you can email the information at mbfi.ca email, and one of the staff will get back to you there. Well, thank you so much, Mary Jane, for joining me again today to share the information on this project. And I'm sure that we will be talking to you again soon. Thank you. We wanted to let listeners know that this episode was prepared and recorded in January of 2023 as I'm taking a short leave from MBFI. Because of this, some of the conversations may seem like they are relating to past information or slightly out of context with the current time. We will resume regular recordings in the summer of 2023. Thank you for your patience. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share. Thank you.